we forget that we as consumers want to love brands we do love brands we love products we love experiences we will sit there and say i will never use snapchat or i love using snapchat because of user experience we have people who are adidas versus nike we have people who will jump higher in jordan shoes than not controlling all the variables mm -hmm. because of the value that brand managers at jordan and nike have created that are associated with that and i think that kind of stuff doesn't get talked about enough welcome to uncooked a podcast serving up raw insights for marketers as we hear the unfiltered truth from industry experts, brands, and the target audiences we serve in their own words. I'm your host, Jacqueline Lieberman, and today on Uncooked is part two with neuromarketer Prince Guman. Prince and Matt Johnson are co-founders of Pop Neuro and co-authors of the book called Blindsight, The Mostly Hidden Ways Marketing Reshapes Our Brains. I'm telling you, you've got to get it. Part one of my conversation with him explored what it means when people say that marketing is a science and how neuroscience is introducing new tools for finding out what customers really subconsciously want. This season is devoted to pulling back the layers behind the brands that people love, and I cannot wait to continue that journey with Prince and his findings today. It's time to talk brainwaves and industry game changers with part two of our conversation. So... Button up your geeky lab coats, it's time to dig in. The answer to bad marketing isn't no marketing. Unless we live reclusively in the middle of nowhere, we are not going to escape the consumer world that we have found all of us in. And ultimately, what drives me personally is this weird distrust, because there is a weird distrust, because for every 10 brand managers is probably one who's doing something shady. They might not even be using neuroscience to do it, right? And I'll tell you a story from my personal life. I don't know if you remember this, Jacqueline. This was like four years ago, maybe three years ago. There was this app called FaceSwap that went from launching to having millions of downloads. And it was a fun app. I take a photo of myself and I can throw a filter on it that makes me look like a baby, that makes me look like a 90-year-old. I did that. I did that with Matt's face, to be honest. I did that with my friend's face, my parents' face. And again, that's really high level of engagement, success all the way through until you realize that the unknown terms and conditions you checked off meant the rights to your baby photo and the rights to your 90-year-old photo are going to this mystery box. So I have no issues calling out that type of practice in, sure. in, in product managers, right? But I think that practice gets a lot of the news. And again, consumers kind of dehumanizing people. We're humans that buy stuff and we call them consumers, right? So for every time there's this outcry for something like FaceSwap, we forget the positive side of marketing. We forget that we as consumers want to love brands. We do love brands. We love products. We love experiences. We will sit there and say, I will never use Snapchat or I love using Snapchat because of user experience. We have people who are Adidas versus Nike. We have people who will jump higher in Jordan shoes than not controlling all the variables mm -hmm. because of the value that brand managers at Jordan and Nike have created that are associated with that. And I think that kind of stuff doesn't get talked about enough. So ultimately, we ended the book with the chapter on essentialism. Because essentialism really is, there is an essence to everything. 
And as a marketer, I don't like the trust piece. But at the end of the day, I want people to love my products and my brand experiences and anything I create as a professional. And consumers want that too. And my secondary hope here is after you understand yourself better through this neuroscience and marketing shopper lens, I'm hoping that there's better appreciation for marketing. Again, not the face swap, shady marketing, but all the stuff that goes behind this, right? Because as marketers, we have to try a lot harder now than we did 50 years ago, let alone 150 years ago. Because there's a glut of option in every industry. Try to buy a pair of sneakers and good luck trying to pick a favorite one if you're generally agnostic about a brand, you know? And someone had to create that. And for every face swap, there's an Allbirds. And the idea really was to understand that stuff because it's a more accurate view on how this consumer marketer relationship really is. And it is a relationship. That's the crazy part. We're in a relationship with brands, whether we want to admit it or not. Yes, we are in an age of mistrust. An article in Inc. Magazine recently shared a staggering 96% of consumers don't trust advertisements due to practices similar to what Prince just described. But it's also true that, like it or not, we as consumers need brands to provide products and services. So who do we trust to ensure that we get the stuff that we need? People love brands that can prove one way or another that they are the real deal. And what does that look like? Well, for me and what I think, it's us, humans. The more human a brand is, the easier it is to trust them. I firmly believe that if brands just adopted a human mentality, they wouldn't talk to people just when they want to sell something. They would understand when they're not wanted. They mm-hmm. would listen more than speaking. They'd have a conscience. They would want to do things for good. So those are just like human principles that we just have in our everyday lives of having relationships with anybody in our life. So if brands just adopted a lot of that as just a lens, I feel like marketing immediately could start to get better. I love that. I think there's two things. I want to define marketing. But before we get into definition of marketing, I think this newfound need to be a more human brand, I think that's great. Ultimately, we figured out the brand personality wheel, and then we figured out the right personality associated with your brand that leads to your product, right? Whether you're Under Armour, you're the quintessential underdog or your Nike, you're literally the gods of sport. Those are personalities that they chose a long time ago and they committed to it. I think that consumers are also growing as brands are growing. And hey, you want to be the person who is the underdog? Let's take it to the next level beyond just a coat of paint that is painted in the color of the underdog. How far are you going to take this personality? Right. right? And I do think that this new challenge from consumers is better because ultimately what is marketing? And that was one of those things that we wrestled with quite a bit, right? It's hard to find a consistent definition for marketing amongst marketers, right? let alone consumers. And we wanted to come up with a definition that applies not only today, but 50 years from now and 150 years in the past. Mm-hmm. And distill down, marketing is a trade of value. How marketers and brands provide value 
has changed, but they still have to provide value. And consumers for the first time in a long time are able to provide value outside of the monetary exchange, right? right. User generated content, man, that's gold these days, right? right? Comments and shares and all of those things are other ways that buyers can now provide value. And we wanted the book to underline that and bold it and blow it up because we want consumers to know that they are the second half of this relationship. Yeah, They also provide value. And we also wanted brands to think about it that way too. We know what's interesting is like, there are all these products that don't really provide a typical utility. And those are the products that are typically the best at branded, right? You look at Coca-Cola, Yeah, you know, Coca-Cola versus Google. Google provides us incredible utility. Right. right. Google didn't do their first ad until it was, I think it was 2013 or 2014 Super right. Bowl. Right. Right. Because the amount of utility they provided was massive. Whereas busy adding value to do any campaigns. <laughs> right. Exactly. And they added so much value that the campaign thing came later, as opposed to something like Coca-Cola. This is no offense to anyone who's a Coca-Cola fan, more power to you. But the point I'm trying to make is that the utility is minimal, if right. that, right? Sugar water. And of course, Coca-Cola is always rated year after year as one of the most valuable brands, most creative brands, because they, they associated happiness with their product. They associated a universally loved experience with their product and they did it globally. And that's part of it. Perhaps they're providing value. I would argue that utility-wise, minimal value. But if you're actually going to feel happier after your workday having a glass of soda, more power to you. There's some value there. Yeah. But ultimately, it's that paradigm. It's how can brands provide value beyond the product? And how can consumers demand value beyond monetary and also provide value beyond monetary? Yeah. I want to break in here one sec to highlight an interesting point from Prince. It's the notion of a brand's utility. Utility to a consumer doesn't necessarily mean function. It can but it really means having a tight fit into the lives of the consumer. Utility is really about knowing the brand's unique place in a person's world. So of course you need to deliver on the brand promise and check the boxes your audience expects. But the secret behind brand love is when the brand reflects the consumer back to them. If you were to look at your recent marketing, does it reflect how your fans live, whether it's through imagery or messaging? Does it mirror how they really use your product or service or how you think they use it? Brand utility is a shared understanding between people and the brands that they love and how it all fits into their world. That's the key. So while Blindsight really is definitely great for marketing geeks like myself, it really is for anybody because it's about consumers. It's about learning and understanding the decisions you make and how you buy and why you buy. I just need to ask this question about how does brand purpose fit into when you're looking at brand purpose from like a neuromarketing lens? I mean, is this just another marketing ploy that we made up to get people to buy stuff? What's going on here? From the neuromarketing lens initially, brand purpose should not be dissonant, right? And we live in a world where it's hard to keep stuff under wraps. So when you say brand purpose, I merely think of cognitive dissonance. You cannot go against your brand purpose. More important than ever, you have to have an authentic brand purpose. And a lot of it is internal. And maybe HR professionals and fitness would disagree with this, but 
HR in some ways is marketing applied internally, right? Especially if you have a couple hundred or a couple thousand employees, brand purpose is at least one thing that unites you. And if you do it right, that will be the one thing that also applies to your customers. So it's just gotten to a point where you simply cannot be dissonant when it comes to, and cognitive dissonance is strange. Cognitive dissonance is, again, a neuroscientific or psychological experience. And us as consumers, we deal with it in really weird ways. We deal with it in ways where it would be odd for Tesla to come out with a gasoline truck that gives you 10 miles a gallon because they would be incredibly dissonant. Right. And the consumers who love Tesla would also be dissonant because whether they actually buy it because it's electric powered and it's good for the environment or if they justify the purchase of a sexy yeah. car with that after the fact, they're also going to have to deal with that dissonance. Mm-hmm. So I think the initial response to purposes cannot be dissonant. Right? You, you don't want to create cognitive dissonance internally for your own culture. And you certainly don't want to create cognitive dissonance in the consumer's mind because they're either going to justify it or they're going to go somewhere else. And like we said earlier, there are more options than there are needs to satisfy. You know what's fascinating, though? We've had these conversations off the record with so many brand managers and people aspire to be Patagonia, right? The joke is it's Patagucci because it's really expensive outdoor clothing. Yeah, yeah. But there's something about Patagucci that is admirable, right? Like Patagonia has created a core product that provides value. And then they have a purpose internal and externally that they're executing on. And if people don't want to buy Patagonia because they're too environmentally friendly, Mm -hmm. they're okay with that. Yeah. And that's the problem, right? Patagonia did it at scale. When Nike did the Colin Kaepernick thing, Mm. they knew that people were going to not buy Nike. Yeah. But that's the world we live in now and for the near future is if you're going to look at a non-dissonant brand purpose or internal company purpose, you can't look at it in terms of P&L anymore. Mm-hmm. You simply have to own that now, right? There's only very few brands that can be truly open. I mean, Coca-Cola comes to mind, but I'm not quite sure Coca-Cola can benefit from being purpose-driven, right? But we can see that Nike benefited from that, right? Sure, there's some people who never buy Nikes again, and people burn Nikes for that entire month, which is completely contrasting to Michael Jordan, the first basketball superstar, pop star, really, who just so happened to play basketball. And he's quoted to say, Republicans buy Nikes too, as his justification to not take a stance on social issues. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward 30 years to the LeBron James era of Nike, who is quite the opposite, Right. And that is an incredible risk for LeBron. That is an incredible risk for Nike. But ultimately, if they want to authentically pursue this purpose, they're not looking at it from P&L lines. Yeah. Prince brings up a great point on how all messages, internal and external, need to be in alignment with your brand purpose. His Tesla example, if they ever decided to market a gas guzzler, is an easy one to remember for your own alignment. If your marketing messages are out of whack with what you stand for, you'll be unrecognizable to customers. But it's also problematic for your workplace culture. So this cognitive dissonance is just this fancy way to say, what the fuck? If you're seeing misalignment within your organization, it could be a symptom of needing to do some foundational brand work to articulate your raw truth. 
what is true to you and your brand. If you want to know how to do that, hit me up in the show notes. This is what I do every day. I don't care who you are in the world and what you do for a living or you do nothing for a living. You have a point of view on the world. So Nike is no different than you or I having a point of view as to what we believe in and we have our own personal belief systems. To your point about Nike knew that that whole Colin Kaepernick thing was going to blow up on the other side, but they were okay with that because they're like, this is what we believe in and I'm okay. I think probably where brands struggle is it's like the smaller brands because they'll say, yeah, I know it's easy for Nike to lose sales. It's easy for Patagonia to lose sales and say, don't buy this shirt or whatever, or this jacket, but we can't afford to do that. So I see a lot of fear with smaller brands because they don't want to risk. I hear you. Look, it's a dual-edged sword. I think if I launched a company, I would resist going public as long as possible mm-hmm. because on the outside looking in, it sounds like, sure, Nike can take a 10% hit revenue. Right. Can they? Because they got shareholders. Can they really though, right? Because yeah. imagine what happens when your quarterly earnings look like trash and then all of a sudden you have to deal with that. Well, look at this great ad we did. Exactly. So I'm not disagreeing with you and I empathize with smaller brands. If anything, smaller brands have more of an incentive to have a sharper positioning statement nowadays. Mm-hmm. And especially when consumers are asking for it. I think for better or worse, we're going to see the alt-right brands get bigger because they're also going to figure out that, hey, if so-and-so is going to represent us, and again, it comes down to, you know, you're saying humanizing the brand. I think, you know, hey, we did the personality wheel. Now people want to own that personality. So it's really about yeah. this mental tendency that we have as humans is to personify things, to personify inanimate objects, let alone a brand that has spokespeople and CEOs and endorsers and influencers, all that stuff. As brand managers, as marketers, we're giving so many data points to personify brands and people are simply asking others to own it. So. I'm not saying it's easier for small and mid-sized brands to do that. I think this is the least articulate thing I'll say in our chat is the brain has a great bullshit meter too, right? So a lot of the surface level thoughts and prayers type of attempts at purpose branding, yeah. people are seeing through that. So you either got to commit or yeah. or live in a not so sharp positioning in a world yeah. that is increasingly asking for more human brands and that's life. That's a fun thing to nerd out on, though, Jacqueline, is like, what do you think, if we can come up with a brand that's kind of a well-known brand, at least in the States, that isn't really doing the purpose thing, I'd be curious what you think about such a brand and how they would last the next 10 years. Oh, yeah, I know. I can't think of an example off the cuff of who's doing a bad job, but I think a lot of what I set out to do is I talk a lot about raw truth and the truth of a brand and the DNA of a brand because... I ended up in my previous life helping with brand purpose statements and conducting sessions to really unearth the core tenets of what this purpose statement should actually entail. And then I realized that here's this great statement that has been run up the flagpole, down the flagpole, sideways. It gets painted on the lobby wall. And then it turns out that like no one knows what to do with it is one problem. A lot of times that happens with brand purpose and that the initial thoughts are rooted in the brand DNA. And that's the thing that makes it true because it's not just like we're making up words. 
because it sounds good. This statement has to be rooted somewhere. You have to peel a layer back and be like, hey, yes, this goes back to the brand origin story, the DNA, the founder. I mean, every company or brand was founded for some reason. Let's find out what that is. What was the value initially of why this huge conglomerate now exists? That's important, I think. Let's look at something that is a brand and also a massive utility. Let's look at Uber and Lyft, Mm -hmm. right? Clearly, they provide massive amounts of utility. I can't imagine life without Uber and Lyft, but I would argue that they're not differentiated at all as brands. Right. Outside of pricing, what are you really deciding? Maybe the credit card you're using gives you more points to use Lyft or Uber. It's all incentives-based in a way that's very, it's not brand-driven. So I think, you know, you look at VRBO and Airbnb, obviously Airbnb is way bigger than VRBO. And nonetheless, if you use the app, similar experience. So how do you create a brand identity in a utility-heavy but yet brand, right? And I think that's a really fun challenge. And I think obviously neuroscience can help with that as well. But in general, that's fun to nerd out on because I, I can come up with some ideas. But what do you think about Uber versus Lyft and how do you create a differentiated brand when the experience yeah. is essential? The same drivers have both yeah, exactly. I mean, if, for that example, the thing that comes to mind is when you think about even if a brand is a utility, there's still layers behind that brand. There's people behind the wheel who is driving this vision. And so let's take Uber. So say there's isolated incidents with someone at the top, the founder of Uber, say. So there was some bad press there. Then news trickled out from actual Uber drivers that they were not being treated well by Uber because they were either taking too much of a cut or they weren't being treated fairly for other reasons. So all of that, that's part of the brand experience. While it's still a commodity and a service, people still take that into account of like, oh yeah, Uber, they don't treat their employees nicely. Exactly. I mean, so that's how you start to, while it might not drive every single choice of Lyft over Uber, it's still, I would think, in the back of people's minds. It's a data point. And then we saw the leadership change at Uber and we saw that perception soften. I agree with you. There's only so much of your brand messaging you control and the rest of it is actual organic brand. Yeah. You know what's wild about Uber is go back to what you and I were talking about, about humanizing a brand is I think there's massive opportunity for Lyft and Uber to humanize a brand. Because think about it. They are the hyper-local tech brand. Yeah, They're hyper-local in ways that arguably Google isn't. Meaning you take an Uber to the physical location. Uber is the final mile, literally and figuratively. After you do a Google search about which restaurant to go to mm. or which art exhibit or which concerts in town and whatever that may be. Right. And to me, to create a differentiated brand, I would double down on them being oh, yeah, the like literal vessel of, of culture. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's Austin, New York, London or San Francisco, right? There's Uber is getting the final mile into the culture of said city. And Lyft, I'm using them interchangeably here, and yet neither of them have really done much about that. And I think maybe there is an unmet need there. There might be a opportunity to truly differentiate. My background's in startups as well, so I also know that if I were actually bring this up to someone at Uber, they would say, "Well, we're a tech company, so unless it's a feature, what are we talking about here?" Right. right. So then, then you go the other way around because, and look, I'm not criticizing them. 
it's really hard to launch a startup, let alone have a successful one. And you do it by obsessing over product, not brand. Right. I would argue that that's great. That got you to be where you are now. Yeah. Like you yeah. a couple times over. Now's the time to really think about what brand means for a tech company, whether they like it or not as a brand, and is frankly struggling with differentiation between Lyft and Uber with the drivers yeah. and with the riders. The other one that comes to mind that's a little easier to dissect, one thing that was really odd was, I think it was last year, Gap came out of nowhere. And they're like, boom, Gap and Kanye. <laughs> After being in the news for store closings at record numbers wow. and out of business and all of this, yes. So that to me, I don't have any actual insight. So please take this with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. But from the outside looking in, that to me looks like a desperate attempt to check a lot of boxes. Yes. And the timing could not have been more awful. Like you look at the PL perspective on this is hey, the easy hot couture line did wonders for Adidas. Adidas went from they yeah. were in the top five to being just under Nike slash Jordan being the second most. And the brand lift for Adidas by launching the Yeezy line is massive. It made Kanye a billionaire and it, it made Adidas relevant again in a way that the other competitors simply aren't. So obviously associating Another brand, Gap in this case, Kanye would have the same result, except for the timing, right? Yeezys came out forever ago with Adidas. That collab happened a long time ago. Yeah. In 2020, when he do that collab, I'm willing to bet there were internal discussions about how can we also show allyship? How are we an ally to all that's happening? And I would argue not by syncing up with Kanye because Kanye has said some really ridiculous things that aren't exactly pro social justice, right? And I think that was a very strange choice at a very strange time for them. And my gut, again, I don't have insight. Mm -hmm. My gut wants to question the authenticity of that collab. I'm completely with you 100%. If there is a word to encapsulate that whole thing, I feel like desperate was spot on. (laughs) You know, And, And there's so many amazing people that you can collab with that will check those boxes. It's just, are you chasing Adidas? Because then you're not really chasing an endorsement that actually is authentic. And what do you internally really feel like? What's your purpose internally, Gap, right? And maybe it's time to rewrite that purpose and then have that decide who you're going to have as a figurehead of your company, as opposed to P&L. I agree. Yeah. I mean, so, so far... We need Lyft and Uber and The Gap to call you and I because they need some help. So if anybody's listening, we are here and we want to help you because we believe in your yeah. brand. We just feel like you need a little reset. So Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we've got to put some people in our octopus helmets and see what they actually think about <laughs> Gap Gap plus Kanye and, and to see if I can hypothesize all day, but I'm oh, yeah. pretty confident that we would find some incongruence at the level I'm, of the I'm brain. Just, and, and I'm just picturing like a lot of red flashing lights on that test. I don't know how it works exactly, but I just feel like I feel like there's a lot of flashing lights when you see that. I personally can't wait to find out what Prince learns about Gap and Kanye from wearing those octopus helmets. I could just picture Kanye wearing them. But anyway. That was part two of my conversation with Prince. We covered a lot of ground, so here's a few takeaways to ponder. Marketers are fighting an uphill battle when it comes to trust in advertising, as always. The key to strengthening relationships with consumers is to keep asking how your brand can add value to their life. Are you solving a problem or delighting them in unexpected ways? 
Are you producing content they can use? Or are you always asking them to buy something? We all know that friend who's constantly asking for favors. Don't be that person. Secondly, the brand purpose is more than a pretty statement painted on the lobby wall. Use it as a lens to filter your marketing efforts. You paid a lot of money for it, right? Use it as a filter. You'll know immediately if an idea is out of alignment with your brand purpose. Third, the notion of utility. Utility doesn't always mean function, though it can, but it really means having this really tight fit into the life of the consumer. Think of Yeti, very functional products, but they have a cult-like following because their surround sound of content that they've created They illustrate that they understand their people and their life and how they use their products. That's the key. And finally, the book Blind Sight, co-authored by my guests Prince Gooman and Matt Johnson, is truly eye-opening. Even just reading it as a lifetime consumer, it was fascinating showing this relationship between our brains and brands. The neuroscience behind social media employing that endless scroll to our feeds peels back a layer of psychology that we just never get the chance to really think about. It's really amazing. This has been an episode of Uncooked. I'm Jacqueline Lieberman, founder and chief strategist at Brand Crudo, a marketing consultancy. If you want to discuss how your company can take advantage of these branding concepts, this is what I do every day. You can find my contact info on brandcrudo.com or the show notes. Hey, one more thing. Apple and Spotify changed the way you subscribe to podcasts now. It's now a follow with a plus sign. So I know, I know, but if you like what you heard, I'd love a follow or rating and let me know how we're doing. Thanks again for listening.